What's up, Yankee fans? We are back with another episode of Yankee Crazy Podcast. And have we got a special treat for you on this episode. We had the honor and privilege to talk with Rick Cerrone. Rick is the current editor-in-chief of Baseball Digest and the former senior director of media relations for the Yankees. It was so awesome to sit down with Rick, talk about his amazing baseball career, uh, even his origin story, which you know I love getting those. Uh, Just really incredible how his career path started in high school. Unbelievable. Loved it. Loved his stories. Uh, Like I say in the interview several times, could have talked to Rick for days, for years, all of his stories. And of course, he has some Yankees stories for you. So hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did and looking forward to a part two with Rick one of these days. Okay. Enjoy guys. Rick, thanks for joining us on the show today. Really appreciate it. Greg, it's great to be with you and to talk baseball during these very difficult times. Yes, it is difficult times. And as someone in the industry, you probably uh, hear so much, so many rumors like all of us, but probably even more, obviously, um, because of that. Uh, you know, just to give people a little bit of background on Rick's background, uh, really unbelievable. If I were to do all his, uh, his whole career bio, we'd be here for days. But to give some highlights, Currently, Rick is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Digest. He was the senior director of media relations for the Yankees from 96 to 2006. Also the founder of Baseball Magazine at age 23. Worked for the baseball commissioner's office uh, and, ju- and, and so many more. Uh, does that about cover it, Rick? Anything I missed that is a highlight of your career? Yeah, that's pretty good. I did have a radio talk show when I left the commissioner's office uh, in 1986 to do a, I was given an opportunity by a local New York radio station, WNEW, 50,000 watts, three hour a day sports talk show along with Richard Neer, who, who still does it yes. to this day. And he does it on the station that caused me to get out of that business when the <laughs> following year, w, uh, WHN uh, became WFAN, 24-hour-a-day right. talk. And I said, well, we've got a great show, but we can't compete with a station that's putting all of its promotional dollars behind sports. But I don't think this will last. So, <laughs> But uh, I was then asked to join the Pittsburgh Pirates as vice yes. president of public relations, which I did. But I'm very proud of that show because people will tell you, people in the industry, that that was the template for modern sports talk radio. I mean, when I went to the, I mean, I was brought on as the executive producer. And when I went to the uh, station manager and said, what you need here to separate yourself from the other two shows that are on in the same time period is you need good cop, bad cop, so you need co-hosts. Right. And he looked at me like I had three eyes because (laughs) 
Rick, this is Sports Talk Radio. No one has two hosts. <laughs> uh, we all, Richard came up with the idea to break up the hour into 20-minute segments punctuated wow. by scores and updates, which they also thought was crazy. You mean you're <laughs> going to stop what you're doing every 20 minutes to give scores and updates? So anyway, I'm very proud of that. But I, while I was doing that, I didn't find it fulfilling um, because I really wanted to get back in, into baseball. And when we went to spring training in 1987 to do some shows from Yankee camp, Mets camp, Dodgers camp, again, innovative yeah. at the time, um, I, I really missed baseball. And then the opportunity came to join the Pirates, which was, this, I will say, the six most fulfilling years of my professional life. Wow. Wow. Amazing. What what are some of the things in that that you would uh, say that, that it was so well, fulfilling? Well, first of all, Pittsburgh is such an incredibly wonderful community, yeah. which I miss very much. And I love to go back there once a year for a couple of days with my wife. Um, but uh, let me give you the gist of why, why I say what I just said, which obviously sure. is taking you back a little bit. So, well, no, I just, it, it, I, I just, something like that, uh, yeah, well, your career I, I, is so powerful. Yeah, so. and it doesn't, it, your reaction doesn't surprise me, because I did work for the Yankees for 11 years, and that was the yeah. team that I grew up, you know, I wanted to be the PR director of the Yankees, which we can get into later, since I was 10 years old. So, wow. when I went to Pittsburgh, there was a man by the name of Carl Barger, who became the president of the Pirates. Uh, after Sid Thrift's second, uh, uh, after his palace coup, so to speak, at the end of the 87 <laughs> season, when yeah. the president, Mac Prine, resigned um, and Carl Barger became the president, Doug Danforth, the CEO. But at this time, when I was interviewing for the job, uh, he was like the team lawyer who put the group of 12 or 13 owners together. That was his role. So mm -hmm. I got the job and I went to a game. I wasn't starting for a couple of a week or two. And um, I was in the team box on the suite level, right next to the press box. And Carl came over to me and he says, son, he goes, I want to tell you why we hired you for this job. Hmm. And I said, sure. And he took me off into the a corner and he's smoking a cigarette and got a scotch in the other hand. And you know, he was a real hard living guy. And um, he said, we hired you to save this great franchise for the great city of Pittsburgh, to make sure that people know it's going to be here for the next hundred years. Wow. I didn't hire you for your media guide, your press notes. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> is that all? Save the franchise. But, you know, they had bought it. You know, the, the team went through the drug trials of the 80s. Um, right. attendance was, was down and this was new blood, new ownership, a new life yeah. for the franchise, great young players. And I took that charge, you know, I took it home. I said, okay, we want to convince this market that we're going to be here for the next hundred years. One of the first things I thought of was let's build a, let's finally build the Roberto Clemente statue because mm -hmm. People were trying for years to build a statue to Clemente. In the files which they sent me to, there was like Clemente statue, 1975. Clemente statue, 1977. Oh, Clemente wow. statue, 19. And this was 1987, 88. Yeah. And um, we finally launched a campaign to build a statue because you're not building a statue that's going to sit out there forever. 
if you're moving to another city. Right. So ultimately, they move the statue from one ballpark to the other, but, you know, that's okay. And the other thing I said is, let's get an all-star game. And somebody yeah. in, in management said to me, well, don't we just get, isn't that just done, don't we get that automatically? Isn't that in a rotation? I'm like, really, it's in a rotation? Let me know when we next get it. <laughs> I said, no, you've got to make a pitch and a presentation. You've got to secure, you, you know, there's an all-star manual that you have to you know, adhere to all of their needs. You know, X number yeah. of hotel rooms at right. X number of hotels. And so um, if we get the all-star game in a future year, Clearly, we're not moving. So a, a fortunate thing happened in that we tried to get it for 92, but we couldn't get enough mm -hmm. hotel rooms because there was a barbershop quartet convention in town <laughs> that would not move, and I don't blame them, obviously. So we ended up getting it in 94, which put it you know, two more years down the road. And then we had those just tremendously talented and fun teams you know, the killer bees, Bonds yeah. and Bonilla. I mean, yeah. it was a real love affair um, in Pittsburgh with the Pirates right. you know, while I was there. And, you know, I got out after the night in during the 93 season when they they literally ran out of money um, and really cut the staff dramatically. Oh, wow. And then fortunately, you know, two years later, you know, my dream job opened up again. Yeah. Wow. That awesome. I, I love these backstories. And one of the backstories you kind of hinted at and uh, earlier and just now is working for the Yankees in that dream job. So let's go back and talk about a young Rick Cerrone who has this dream job as a Yankees. I love origin stories. So can you give some background, a little origin on how you got into baseball and how it got to be uh, working for the Yankees as your dream job? Well, I, I think I got into baseball as a very young kid, probably seven or eight or nine years old. And my, you know, yeah. you'd go to your grandfather's house and if it was a Saturday or a Sunday, uh, he, he was sitting on his chair watching you know, the Yankee telecast in black and white. Yeah, I, I can remember him telling me what number I, I was completely baffled that the players wore numbers, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and he would tell me that I remember him telling me Mickey Mantle is number seven, Roger Maris is number nine. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah, and then yeah. with either the Cub Scouts or the little league, probably the Cub Scouts, you know, we had a field trip to Yankee stadium. Well, that was like a, you know, a religious experience for me yeah. because it wasn't called that then it didn't become called, a cathedral, you know, baseball's cathedral right. until the late '90s. Um, but it was a cathedral, and I mean, you know, you had beautiful chair back seats. Um, I'm thinking going to a game, we're going to be sitting on bleachers and whatever. And, mm -hmm. You know, they had a PA announcer. <laughs> I mean, they announced the lineups and they announced the batters, and it was Bob Shepard, you know, the oh, voice yeah. of God. Although <laughs> I will tell you though, if you listen to Bob Shepard in the 60s uh and you can hear a recording on youtube where he where he introduces people at mickey mantle day in 1969 uh -huh. he had a very different not so much voice but tempo he spoke a lot faster so it wasn't the voice of god right, that i actually right. impersonated 
for three games at Yankee Stadium when I had to fill in for him. No way. 2000 really. and, and later. But, you know, the early 1960s, Bob Shepard was a little different. But I was so struck. Yeah. By, this must be important to have a PA announcer. But <laughs> so over the years, I go to maybe in the 60s, one or two games a year with my dad or my parents or whatever. Yeah. Or friends, parents. Um, and I always bought the Yankee yearbook. And it was oh, yes. 50 cents at the time. Yep. So, you know, it was very affordable. And for some reason, I, I read every page, you know, um, around the league, the, you know, the stars of other teams on the way up. Who are the mm -hmm. stars of the future? Because uh, that was the only time you were going to see them was on that page. They never right. actually made it to the, to the <laughs> game. But, uh, you know, I'm still, still waiting for Freddie Frazier. Uh, <laughs> the next second base and check trail. They never got there. But anyway, it was also a page that was like, let's say the team behind the team. And it was the front office. And it was probably all of 25 people, uh, yeah. if that. And um, you, you'd look at them and this guy is the accountant, Frank Swain, ticket manager, yeah. you know, Debbie Nicolosi, administrative assistant, Bob Fischel, Director of Public Relations. Hmm. And now I'm hearing that name on the television and radio broadcasts. Uh -huh. You know, where Phil Rizzuto would say, well, Bob Fischel just came into the booth and he tells me that uh, that home run by Joe Pepitone it ties him with, <laughs> you know, whatever. So yeah. I'm like, that's a pretty good job. Yeah. So now we jump ahead. I went from a parochial grade school, grammar school, mm -hmm. where you went through the same you know, the eight years, nine with kindergarten, sitting at the same desk all day. <laughs> you know, you didn't move around. You know, you, you, it was time for another subject. You put the book under your desk and you took the other book out. And yeah. the same people, whatever. So now we moved from Mount Vernon, New York, to Yorktown Heights. So now I'm a freshman knowing nobody at Yorktown High School. Yeah where you have seven different classes and you have lunch and we're having a pep rally and we're going to protest the war. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're going to walk out of class. You know, it's like I, I, yeah. I was involved in everything and was really good at everything except class. I, I was <laughs> a, a terrible, terrible student. I cannot watch the movie Animal House when the dean is going through everybody's grades. <laughs> I, I've been there. Um, so... What happened, and this is, I will tell you that if you don't think miracles happen and that somebody is looking over you, I would disagree because yeah. my freshman year, the, the failure of my friend, my guidance counselor was a, was a very nice man named Mr. Swales, right? Richard mm -hmm. Swales. Well, over the summer between my freshman year and my sophomore year, we learned that Mr. Swales has been named the uh, principal of the school. Well, clearly he's not going to be my guidance counselor anymore. Right. So when I get, I get a notice somehow that my new guidance counselor is a man named Buddy Dowds, Bud Dowds. Uh -huh. Now I knew two things about Bud Dowds at the time. One, he was the football coach in addition to being a guidance counselor. Yeah. And number two, his father was the first ever coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, wow. You know, in 1932, Bud Dowd's father was the head coach of the first head coach ever of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah. So the guy had a little, you know, cred with me. You know, I'm like, yeah. wow, this is my guy. Now, 
I will tell you, Greg, I don't know how I was given to Bud Dowds and not, you know, somebody else. Right. You know, whether they did it by the last, you know, the first letter of your last name, whether they pulled names, I don't know. But if I don't get assigned to Bud Dowds, you and I are not having this conversation. Wow. Right now, because I don't have the background I did. So he's sitting there looking at my grades, right? Yeah. I used to call it my rap sheet. Um, <laughs> and he's got this befuddled look on his face. Like, what? What are you doing? Um, in those days, they had what they called warning notices, where they would send yeah. your parents a letter like a month before the final grades to say, we're warning you, your son is below par. And you know, uh -huh. my mission in life was to get those warning notices from the mailbox before they did. <laughs> um, and I was really good at it. So um, anyway, um, he's looking at this and he finally looks up to me and he asked me a question that changed my life. He said, what the heck do you see yourself do doing when you're a grown up? You know, what, what are your, what are yeah. you, what do you see yourself doing? Now, the reason he asked that question, I am convinced, was because whatever my answer was, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a whatever, journalist, yeah. his answer was going to be, well, you'll probably need a high school diploma for that, and the way you're going, it's not going to happen. Oh. But my answer floored him. Yeah. I said to the question, what do you see yourself doing when you're an adult? That's easy, coach. I'm the public relations director of the New York Yankees. Oh, wow. And I can still see him, you know, kind of backing up and saying, what? And I told him all about the job. <laughs> I told him all about Bob Fischel. And I finally ended up saying, look, coach, I'm never going to grow up to be Mickey Mantle. I know that. But there's no reason I can't be Bob Fischel. And he looked at yeah. me and he said, okay, I'll make you a deal. If you can get your grades up and keep them up, because this was a new year. This is probably in the yeah. summer some, you know. <clears throat> if you can get your grades up and keep them up, do you think you can do for my football team what Bob Fischel does for the Yankees? Oh, wow. And I said, well, when do I start? Now, let me tell you <laughs> something, Greg. That football team, the 1970-71 Yorktown Cornhuskers, we had a media guide. Wow. We had a media guide. <laughs> and the reason we had a media guide is because I noticed – the year before my freshman year, that we'd get one or two or three games broadcast on the local radio station, WFAS, because, yeah. um, you know, it depended on, it was the game of the week, so he would, they would pick a game that week and go do it. And the man that did it um, still lives here in Westchester County t today, Jerry Desmond. He would mm -hmm. come to the, and I would like, how does he know how to pronounce the names? <laughs> How, what does he say about the quarterback? You know, you know, he, he doesn't yeah. know anything about him. So, you know, we did pronunciation guide. We did bios of the players. Wow. And I remember Coach Dowds never cut anybody. If you wanted to play on his team, you, you could, but you may never play. Yeah. So there yeah. was about six or eight people that were not really gifted athletes. So yeah. I made this thing where I sat down with him before these three seasons that I did this to get his little insight on each player. So in the media guide, you're given the, the reporter or the whatever, a little something about each player. Well, yeah. you knew the players that were just there because they didn't get cut because 
he would always say, oh, so-and-so, nobody tries harder. Hard worker, you know, but he never said yeah. anything about their ability. Out yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I did that for three years and I did basketball and baseball. And when I did baseball and any of the sports, I met a guy who was a local sports editor. His name was Stanley Shallot, and he took mm -hmm. a liking to me. And, you know, he, he kind of thought to himself, why am I going to the games when this kid could write the stories himself? You know, yeah. so I ended up writing the stories. I got practiced wow. that way. And my senior year, Stanley Shallot tells me that I'm leaving. I'm moving to DeKalb, Illinois to be the sports editor of the DeKalb Daily Chronicle. Okay. It was nice knowing you goodbye. <laughs> so he calls me up one day, my senior year, when I'm starting to look at colleges, none of whom will have me. Like <laughs> why I'm going to Susquehanna University and this place, I have no idea. Because I'm not getting in with my grades, whatever. Yeah. And he calls me one day and he says, look, you need to come out here because there's a major university here who, you know, has an up and coming division one sports program. You know, mm -hmm. their basketball team, like the week before this had just beaten Bobby Knight's first Indiana team. Oh, wow. Which was ranked fifth in the nation. Yeah. So, I mean, wow, I took notice. Yeah. So I went out there to see this school and I got the, the red carpet rolled out for me. Wow. Like I was some prize recruit. I'm going to luncheons. I'm going to, you know, basketball game. Yeah. And um, so anyway, um, I ended up getting accepted there through a program they had called the chance program. And I saw the letter in the last couple of years, my acceptance letter. And it clearly says that I got admitted because, I mean, NIU does have standards. It is a wonderful <laughs> institution. So I got accepted there because of my extracurricular activities, <laughs> which was the, the media guide and the, yeah, you know, yeah. all the things they like writing for the newspaper, whatever. So I told you that story because that's how it started. Yeah. So I get to NIU, right? And to me, it was like an educational and academic Disneyland. Everything I needed to become the PR director of the Yankees or whatever I wanted to do in sports yeah. was there. I mean, this was a major, this was a 20,000 plus student, you know, uh, university. This was right. like living, it was like a city unto itself. Yeah. And you had to learn everything, you know, make your bed, how to make coffee and how to get to class on time and how to yeah. get to work on time. Yeah. Because I was the, you know, I, went to work for the student newspaper, which published daily at the time. So you, you had a, that was a commitment to put out a daily newspaper. And then I went to oh, work yeah. for the campus radio station. I did uh, play by play and color for football and basketball. Uh, I worked closely with the sports in information director, another guy uh, or two guys, Bud and Angle and Mike Korsik, without whom, again, we're not having this conversation. Yeah. So, what I would say to listeners, and I say this to my students, because I teach a graduate level course at Iona right. uh, in the summer, you know, you got to take advantage of every opportunity because, you know, things are going to, you're going to get opportunities. The question is whether you seize them because you right. could say, nah, I'd rather not do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, things have happened to me my whole career. Or I could have easily said, nope, I'm really not interested. Or I, I'm too busy. 
but those things led me to my next step. Yeah. So that's what I would tell anyone listening who wants a career in sports or whatever. You can do it, but you can't just walk into a team or a league office or whatever. And I used to get these calls all the time at the Yankees. Mr. Cerrone, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a teller at uh, Chase Bank. And I woke up this morning and decided it's time for me to change my life. And therefore, I would like to offer my services to the New York Yankees. Well, that's great. But what services are those that you're going to provide? Yeah. You know, you got to, you know, you got to identify the need, the niche, and fill it. And also, they would all say, and money is not an issue. I'm willing to work for it, you know, whatever. And I'm like, you know what? It's the people like you that I keep getting told by my employers, there's a line of people at the door that will do your job for half of what we're paying you. Right. So, you know, don't let's not use that line because that's yeah, not going to free. <laughs> but anyway. Wow. Love it. That is Rick. That is really awesome story. I love it. It, it was like you said, they, they were, you know, you were being not, not groomed for the job, but in, in a sense that set you off to get all that experience. And, you know, uh, at such a, such a young age doing that, that's, that's really incredible. I love it. So well, here, here's yeah. another a funny thing about that, Greg, is that, so I'm at NIU, I'm a freshman. It's probably yep. November or so of my freshman year. Yankees have had a great year and then completely collapsed. Um, but they were in a pennant race right up till the end of August. Um, it's the last year in the old stadium. So I write yep. a letter to Bob Fischel. And I had written him in the oh. past, but always as a fan. Right. Um, you know, like, you know, making ridiculous suggestions or whatever. Um, but anyway, I wrote a letter looking for summer employment. Uh, you know, you're looking, you're, I think you wrote it a summer job. You didn't say an internship because they wouldn't have known, you know, internships were at hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember the day, I remember getting the letter at my mailbox from room 1031A at Stevenson South Towers at Northern <laughs> Illinois. You know, taking it out of the mailbox. Here's the letter from the Yankees. This has got to be. I go upstairs. I sit on my little bed because that was the only thing to sit on. <laughs> little room. I opened it up and I read it. And basically, it was a rejection letter saying that there's uh, nothing available. I remember him writing, I will keep your letter on file should something open up. Yeah. But I am not optimistic as a <clears throat> Major League Baseball front office is very small. So, um, you know, I kept that letter all those years as motivation. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I've, when I got the Yankee job, <clears throat> I had it framed in my office alongside of a picture of Bob Fischel and me because Bob became my mentor and a very dear oh, friend. Wow. And, uh, but the interesting thing was I've looked at that letter and it's not on the wall right now because I don't have the space I once did. Yeah. Uh, or I don't have the office at Yankee Stadium. But um, I looked at the letter and um, the date on it struck me. I think it was like December 27th, 1972. Mm -hmm. And what struck me about that date was after all these years was that, wow, 
about seven days after Bob Fischel wrote this letter, his world changed. And he had no knowledge of it at the time he wrote this letter. Being employed by very conservative CBS, right? Owned the Yankees. Yeah. But in one week, it would be announced that the team had been bought by a relatively unknown shipbuilder yeah. from Cleveland, Ohio, yeah. <laughs> right. by the name of George Steinbrenner. And Bob Fischel's world and everybody that worked for the Yankees yeah. world was turned upside down. And in the next 24 years, which is how long it would be for me to ultimately get the job as the yeah. PR director of the Yankees, I think he went through a dozen PR directors, like one every two years. Oh, so um, that was the environment I walked into in 1996 when the job opened up again. Yeah. Yeah. That, I incredible. And let's delve into that. Like, do you remember, uh, I, I would imagine you do, you're bringing up all these amazing stories with <clears throat> such clarity. Do you remember where you were either when that job for the Yankees came available or you got the call for to come in and talk to them about it. Any, any like moments where you're like crystal clear in your head well, and it was yeah. like, wow, I'm going to work for the Yankees. Well, yeah, but they're probably not completely accurate in terms of the days, but right. I remember living in Pittsburgh at the time and my brother-in-law, Scott coming to my house for Christmas and I guess it was on Christmas Eve, and he threw the Daily News onto my kitchen table, and the back page was a caricature of George Steinbrenner, and I think that the headline, I could be wrong, but this is what I remember, was Scrooge, <laughs> with a big exclamation point, and the story was that he had fired his PR director, who had gone home for the Christmas holiday. Oh, wow. Now, I'm, I know there was more to the story. And it, you know, I mean, yeah. it was because he was told you probably shouldn't go home for Christmas because we might sign David Cohn, who was a free agent. Yeah. And he basically thought, well, I can come back, whatever. And the minute he landed in, I think, Columbus, Ohio, he called the office and they had signed Cohn. And he said, okay, I'll be right back on the next plane. <laughs> and I, apparently Steimer told him, you know, he was told to tell him, you know, don't bother. Yeah. So – that's my first recollection that, well, the, the job was open because the PR director yeah. was fired. But, and then I started getting calls from people I know, like Bill Madden, the sports writer, and Jack O'Connor. Uh -huh. And, hey, your job's available. So <laughs> I'm like, I don't want any part of this because that kid's going to get his job back. If I know anything about George Steinbrenner over the years, you know, he's going to yeah. see the, the bad and realize he was, you know, a jerk and uh, hire him back. Well, about two weeks went by and they started calling me again and said, look, they offered to get his job back. He didn't take it. Oh, wow. Um, so they're looking for a more senior person and your name keeps coming up. Wow. So if you're interested in this job, here's, you know, call Arthur Richmond. He's handling the search, whatever. Yeah. He was also, you know, handling the search. They were looking for a manager, a general manager, pitching coach. Everybody right. was changing after the, right. you know, the 95 blowing the two games to none lead in the playoffs. Yes. So I called Arthur and I remember saying to Arthur, who I had known for 20 years, 25 years, he was with the Mets as their head of PR, head of marketing, traveling secretary. And now as he was approaching 70, 
Mr. Steinbrenner gave him a job with the Yankees as a senior advisor in public relations. Yeah. So he would kind of be my Luca Brazzi, so to speak. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I called Arthur and I remember giving him this whole spiel, the story I just gave you. Yeah. I've been preparing for this job since I was, well, I'm a, and his, I'll never forget his response. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you can't work for this man. He's insane. Hey, blah, 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 blah. So I don't know how I thought of this, but I said, well, you do, right? <laughs> you do. And he said, that's different. I don't take any of that. I go right back. And I said, well, Arthur, you'll teach me. I'll learn from you. All right, Ricky, uh, hang on there. I'll, I'll call you back. So he called me back. And I'm in Pittsburgh. And um, he said, come up for an interview. The interview was on a Friday. And I that Sunday night, I, I must have rented a tux the next day because Sunday night I'm at the baseball writer's dinner uh -huh. being introduced as the new, you know, in the crowd. Please welcome the new director of media relations. Oh, wow. At least for the next two weeks. <laughs> and I remember... One of the previous times I interviewed for the job, um, which was in 1983, at the 83 Baseball Writers Dinner, I think it was 83, but thereabouts, I had interviewed for the job and went to the Baseball Writers Dinner in my black tie with my dad, you yeah. know, waiting to hear and being very optimistic, only to see the guy they hired be introduced. That's how I learned that Harvey Green got the job and not me. Oh, wow. So, but you know what? Things work out for a reason because if my first year wasn't 96, if it was 83 or 85 or 91 or 94, I wouldn't have lasted 11 years. But I think all the stars aligned. Yeah. Um, you know, Joe Torrey was the manager, which was a tremendous help. Um, you know, Bob Watson and Brian Cashman. Yeah. Um, and I also had a plan of how I was going to deal with George Steinbrenner. Really? Because if you remember, you know, back in the seventies, I wanted to be the PR director. That was my ultimate goal. Right. So I was able to start this magazine in my basement in 1977 and you know it became a national magazine and whatever yeah. and in 19 in november of 77 the yankees had won their first world series in however many years and yep. i landed we had a thing called q a you know or uh -huh. the, the, the baseball magazine interview or something like that the inter and it was yeah. just a q a interview and i got i landed george steinbrenner as the subject uh -huh. so he invited me down to his office, which was oh, a wow. big thrill for me. And I'm sitting in his office and I'm sitting across the table. And I asked a question about his, I asked really good questions. It was a really good interview for a young kid. Yeah. 23 years old or 22, whatever, whatever old I was. Anyway, yeah. I asked him a question about his management style mm -hmm. and I'll never forget. Like, did you manage different people differently? And I'll, I, I can still hear him and see him giving me the answer. He said, wow. let me tell you this, son. There's two types of leaders. Some are Pattons and some are Eisenhowers. And I'm a Patton. Wow. You know, General Patton, General yep. Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. So I left the stadium that day. I remember getting into my car 
when what a thrill it was to park in the players' parking lot, even though it was yeah. Warm. Anyway, I got in my car thinking, if I ever get that job, that's how I'm going to play this. He's General Patton, and I'm a lowly corporal. <laughs> so jump ahead, what, 20 years yeah. to January of 96. You know, I got the job in mid-January, right? Late January, the, yeah. the, day before, the day of the baseball writers' dinner. And we're probably two weeks away from going to spring training, maybe three weeks. In those two, three weeks, I hadn't had any contact with George Steinbrenner. None. Wow. I just went about my business. We had Yankee Fest, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm like, this isn't so bad. He's not so bad. <laughs> so then we get to spring training. You know, I think here's the keys to your rental, your car. Here's the keys to your furnished apartment. And I'm like, yeah. this is pretty good. Here's <laughs> Legends Field. Now, the great thing about it, Greg, was Legends Field and our spring training facility was new to everybody. Yeah. Because nobody had been there because they were training in Fort Lauderdale. Right, right. So it was new to Joe Torrey because he was new, Mel Stiles, all the coaches except for Willie Randall. Mm -hmm. So it was a great starting point. You were part of a family that was like moving into, you know, making yeah. this great move. Yeah. So now I'm in spring training and days are going by and I, I see him off in the distance. I've had no contact with him whatsoever. Wow. And then one day, his office was in the stadium, now George Steinbrenner Field, on the yep. fourth floor. My office was in the press box on the third floor. So one day I'm, I'm turning the corner and I can hear the elevator you know, beep. And I yell, hold that, like you used to do in college. Yeah, yeah. And um, the doors are open and there's this man holding the door open with the meanest look on his face. <laughs> It's George Steinbrenner who's going up to his office and he's thinking, who's this media clown that's asking me to hold up the elevator? Oh my goodness. So the door closes. He doesn't say a word to me. He just got this scowl on his face. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Steinbrenner, but I probably should introduce myself. I'm your new public relations director, Rick Cerrone. And he lit up. Oh, Rick. Wow. It's good to see you. Wow. And I'll never forget what he said, Greg. What's that? He said, Len Berman says great things about you. <laughs> now, Len Berman wasn't as yeah. a sportscaster. Len Berman says great things about you. Now, I don't know what Len Berman ever said to George Steinbrenner <laughs> about me. And I had met Steinbrenner many times, so it's not yeah. like he shouldn't have known me. That, I said, wow, this isn't so bad. Well, the next morning, I get called into some office on the ground level, not where his office was. Yeah. I get called into the office of the person that ran the dining room. Like the, you know, where, where the media aide yeah. and the, the press room. Uh -huh. And he's asking me to explain all these names on this list that he's paying for free, you know, <laughs> feeding for free. And I'm like, I just started this job. I have nothing <laughs> to do. So I said to him, I said, sir, I always started with sir. Yeah. You built that room. You put those tables in. You put that that kitchen in, you put that, right. why did you do it? I didn't do it. <laughs> I said, if you don't want to feed him, we won't feed him. Then I think it was a test. Uh -huh. and he looked at the other guy in the room, guy, Max, who uh, was running the, you know, Max's cafe, yeah. which it later became. And he looked at Max like, oh boy, I got my hands full here. <laughs> so um, 
you know, that's the way it started. But it was uh, 11 incredible years that, you know, probably took their toll on me physically and mentally. But it was, you know, I mean, four World Series rings and two American League Championship yeah. rings, enough to incredible. give one to my son, one to my dad. So, wow, that's cool. Wow. Wow. Rick, the, uh, another unbelievable story. I, I swear we could keep you on for probably weeks with all these stories. Really, well, we, really we can, amazing. It, we can keep going or we can do it again. So, uh, Yeah, would, would love to. Um, we could, let's, um, let's talk for a little bit more, but I would love to schedule a part two on another day. Uh, but when you were with the Yankees, Mm-hmm. Derek Jeter comes up. Right. So that's his first year. So you have yep. Joe Torrey, Derek Jeter, uh, you know, let's see, 96. That is when Tino came as yep. well. Um, yeah. So many, uh, so many stars, obviously 96, you know, special moment in Yankee history with finally winning a world series after all those years. Really, really incredible. From that 96 season, is there any behind-the-scenes story uh, of a player that sticks out to you during that time? Oh, oh yeah, there's many of them. Um, Can you give you us know, one more? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll take you to spring training because, um, you know, there's a little bit of a misinformation out there that somehow – Jeter became the starting shortstop because of a spring training injury to Tony Fernandez. And I actually went back and looked to see if my memory was failing me. Yeah. But I, but in looking at the news reports of the day when he was injured, which was very late in spring training. Yeah. He was playing, as I remember, second base. Tony Fernandez was moved to second base and yeah. was going to be the everyday second baseman to accommodate our rookie, Derek Jeter. Right. So Jeter was scheduled to go into the season as the shortstop because the, the news reports of the day, well, well now, now he's got no, he's got no safety net now. Mm -hmm. He's the shortstop now, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, I remember that they had a meeting um, in, uh, in Tampa, all the coaches and all of, Mr. Steinbrenner's cabinet. Now, I don't know who all was there in 96 specifically, like whether they were all there that day, but he had people like Al Rosen, you know, who was his former yeah. GM, Dick Williams, the former manager, yep. Clyde King, his former manager, pitching coach, um, Stick Michael was there, mm -hmm. obviously, and, and a number of other, you know, baseball minds. And they all went up to the conference room on the fourth floor, the coaches, Joe Torrey. And, you know, at some point I came into Joe's office waiting for his return so I can hook him up with the media and we get to, you know, finish the day. Yeah. And I'll never forget Joe coming in, like shaking his head, like you could see something. And I'm like, what's, you know, what, what's going on? And apparently, because others then came into the room and they were talking about this, one of Mr. Steinbrenner's cabinet got up at the meeting and said, I'm going to, I'm here to tell you right now, we cannot win with this kid Jeter at shortstop. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, and, and they, that's when they started talking about trading. It ended up being Mariano Rivera 
for to Seattle, I want to say, yeah. or Cleveland. I think Cleveland for Felix Fermin, <laughs> who I had in Pittsburgh, uh-huh. you know, as our starting shortstop along with Raphael Belliard. And I'm thinking, I don't know a lot here, but I'm not sure Felix Fermin is the answer. But, <laughs> you know, obviously I think Gene Michaels stood up and, and like somehow convinced yeah. Mr. Steinbrenner to give it some time. But that's my earliest recollection of like something that happened. Another recollection is that they had they had Daryl Strawberry in 1995, who came up, and I Arthur had to, when he went to Columbus, the AAA affiliate, to, to get ready. They sent Arthur Richmond there to babysit him or whatever. Oh really? Um, and now in the middle of whatever, maybe June or something, July of '96, they're talking about bringing him back, and we're doing fine. You know, and I'm thinking, why do we need to bring that headache? You know, it's <laughs> certainly going to be a headache for me because it's going to, you know, up the, you know, up the the eyes on us, whatever. Yeah. Ah, we don't need to do this. We, well, you know, we did it, and boy, was I wrong. And I tell him that I tell him that to this day. I mean, you talk about misjudging somebody based on your perception yeah. of him. Boy, did I misjudge uh, Daryl Strawberry because uh-huh. he was a great teammate to his teammates, yeah. um, a great leader, um, a great person. He's uh, still to this day a great friend. Nice. Um, I can't say enough about Daryl Strawberry, who you know fought his demons even with the Yankees. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I remember getting a phone call when he had gotten arrested during one of the spring trainings, 99 or whatever. And yet he's out there stretching with the team in spring training. Yeah. And the commissioner's office called up and told me, go down there and get him off the field. Oh, wow. So it's not like he didn't, you know, his demons didn't follow him, but he was such a good guy. Yeah. And he was just a joy to be around. Uh, I felt that way about Gooden. I loved Dwight Gooden. Mm-hmm. And I had to see him pitch that no hitter in '96. Phenomenal. Which, you want to talk about something that came out of nowhere? A couple of weeks, or if you look it up, we were in Minnesota, uh, maybe the week before or two starts before, and he was not pitching well at all. And mm-hmm. I think he got knocked out in Minnesota. And one of the writers came up to me in the press box and said, "When are you guys going to end this charade and get rid of this guy?" Wow. And I like to say, you know, when I talked to that writer today, who's a dear friend, I said, remember when you said that to me? Remember when I said to you, I see a no-hitter coming from him? <laughs> I didn't say that. But, <laughs> um, you know, who would have thought that two weeks later he would pitch a no-hitter? And it, it's talked about in the current issue of Baseball Digest, which is on sale now, the May-June issue. Our Q&A is Harold Reynolds. And, oh, I, didn't, and I did the interview. But I didn't ask him this to, uh, for him to tell this story, but I, I, I just said something simple like, how difficult or easy was the transition because you went right from being on the field yeah. to, you know, because I remember Harold from 96. And, and he tells yeah. the story that he knew nothing about television or how it was done. They just somehow, you're standing there talking, it just happened. And he tells this story about going to Yankee to a Yankee game on a Tuesday night in May, 
And at some point during the game, he says to himself, this guy's going to pitch a no-hitter. And he calls his station. He calls ESPN, for whom he just started working. Yeah. And he says, this guy's going to pitch a no-hitter. And the station, uh, Jeff Schneider at ESPN says, it's the fourth inning. (laughs) So, no, I'm telling you, he's going to pitch a no-hitter. So, I don't know how much of that part of it's true. But all I know is that they said – to Harold, if we get you a camera, can you get on the air if he pitches a no-hitter? He goes, get on the air. I'm wearing sweats. <laughs> so Jeff Schneider calls me up and says, hey, Rick, um, can you get Harold a pass, whatever? And do you have anything he can – do you have a sports jacket he can wear? <laughs> oh, wow. So Jeff calls back Harold and says, listen, get with Rick Cerrone, the Yankees PR director. He's going to give you a jacket. Wow. He's going to take, take you to where you're going to get – he'll get you good. And that's what happened. Oh, my so goodness. one of Harold's first uh, appearances, one of my duties as the Yankee PR director. Wow. Was, and I tell the story like after the game, I'm in a press conference, you know, an availability with Gooden. Yeah. You know, he's sitting at a table with the back – and I'm standing at a podium without a jacket. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I've been on this job for two months and I'm going to get fired. Because the oh. boss says we wear jackets. Oh wow! You know, uh, you know <laughs> he never called me about it though. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you another great story about jackets. Yeah. Is that one time very early on? It was either '96 or '97 because Bob Watson was the GM. We were going to Seattle, right? And uh-huh. uh, there was a women's sports writers association, and I'm getting the name wrong. Association of Women Professional Baseball Sports Writers. They had a big seminar, convention, whatever, in the same hotel we were at in Seattle Mm -hmm. while we were going to be in Seattle. So they were going to have a representative of the Mariners, the Seahawks, and I think one other team, and they asked if there would be somebody from the Yankees that would sit on this panel discussion. So – I went to Bob Watson and Bob suggested Bernie Williams Mm -hmm. to do this, which I said, that's fine. So I went to Bernie and Bernie said he would be honored to do it, whatever, you know, he'll do it. And I kind of helped him with what questions, you know, I prepped him. Yeah. So at some point he said, what do you think I should wear? Should I wear a jacket and tie? And I said, well, I don't know that you have to wear a jacket and tie, but I would definitely wear a sports jacket, maybe an open collar. Yeah. But definitely wear a sports jacket. Bernie, I meet Bernie at the elevator, and first I met the two other people that are going to be on the panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eugene Lockhart from the uh, Seahawks, and I think Dan Wilson was the catcher for the Mariners that were there. And they were both there before Bernie. They're both in jeans and T-shirts <laughs> or golf, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, they're clearly yeah. they're clearly, clearly casual. Yeah. And I don't mean business casual. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm now waiting for Bernie at the elevator. And the door opens and Bernie walks out in a three-piece suit. Oh, my goodness. With a tie. <laughs> And I'm like, I, there's no time for me to say, like, Bernie, don't be shy. <laughs> he goes up there. So, Bernie, picture him on this stage, you know, that they set up. Yeah. Three chairs, jeans and a T-shirt, jeans and a golf shirt. And 
Bernie up there in a yeah. three-piece suit. <laughs> like he's going to sell you an insurance policy. <laughs> so at the end of the thing, Bernie's walking out and women are coming out and talking. And I'm at the end waiting. And I took him aside and I said, Bernie, look, I apologize. Clearly, you didn't need to wear a three-piece suit, whatever, <laughs> even, even the jacket and tie. But I, you know, I just... You know, I just felt it, and he and he puts his hands on my shoulder, and he says, "Rick, it's okay. I'm a I'm a Yankee," and I'm like, "Wow, that's the way a Yankee conducts himself." Now, what I was telling him was, "You have no idea how many women have come over to me to tell you thank you, because you should with the respect you showed them by the way you dressed." Yeah, yeah. And Bernie said, "Rick, I'm a Yankee." I'll never forget that. That's awesome. That is awesome. Love it. Love it. And um, like I said, Rick, we, I could probably talk to you and ask you questions about uh, just probably just 1996 for about a year. <laughs> but, uh, listen, Greg, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, we are going to have to schedule part two. But before we wrap up, let's go over what you're currently doing. Baseball Digest, it's actually a historic day today, May 5th, and it is for the first time in the 79-year history of Baseball Digest that a woman, and this is two women, Alyssa Mackin for the San Francisco Giants and Rachel Balkovic of the New York Yankees are on the cover of Baseball Digest, and that is getting officially released today. So that is just spectacular. And that, that's got to be a, a super proud moment for you uh, that you are, you know, the head of Baseball Digest, Rick. Well, I, I'm immensely proud that I was a part of this. Um, you know, I've been the editor-in-chief of Baseball Digest for two years now. I was charged with reimagining the publication, which has been around since 1942. That's yeah. a long time. Yeah. And a woman has appeared on our cover before, but she was in the uniform top jersey, uh, jersey only, by the way, uh, of the Las Vegas Dunes Casino Hotel. And that was back in 1959 Uh. when the story was baseball's darling daughters. And it it, it really said, Greg, in the story that because baseball is available to the offspring of, of male male offspring only, the daughters of major league players have to find their success in other fields. And this young lady, who was the daughter of former pitcher Rip Sewell, was, I guess, a Vegas showgirl. So that's where we were in 1959. Well, you know, in January, December, the Yankees announced that they've hired Rachel Balkovic. Uh, You know, they're entrusting the development of their young players at Class A Tampa to Rachel Balkovic. Yeah. The San Francisco Giants then announced that they're hiring Alyssa Nacken as a major league coach. Yeah. That's going to have duties and roles and whatever on the major league level. So this is a story. This is a great yeah. story. And I said, look, that's a cover. That's a cover because it's never happened. Yeah. Uh, it's never happened in our history. It's never happened in major league baseball history that they've had a major league coach. So, I'm very proud that these two women are are on the cover. Um, I I feel terrible that their dream has been delayed mm-hmm. because you know obviously we're in a hiatus here, an unprecedented hiatus, 
and but you know they'll they'll get to do their jobs and we're very proud i know they're excited about it um and it's had a lot of buzz the issue because you know we released the cover a week ago and people have their subscription copies now if their mail hasn't been quarantined but yeah. <laughs> um, you know um and i know someone who whose mail was and he just got his copy yesterday yeah but um yeah we're really proud of it and you can go to baseballdigest.com and on that you can subscribe and you can also buy a single issue it's available at newsstands although i will say our retail outlets uh have been uh significantly cut right. because of the virus right. uh, you know barnes and noble for example is not taking any publications right now mm -hmm. but you can get it on baseballdigest.com and i'll give you an even better one for your for your listeners greg if yeah. you go to baseballdigest.com forward slash free f-r-e-e -E, yeah you could read every issue in the history of baseball digest from 1942 through 2019 uh, yeah. for free through July 15th. Yeah, I, I saw that and I was just about to bring that up. And that is really cool. I was actually looking at some old covers last night of the 70s and 80s uh, when I was a kid and, and, you know, collecting baseball cards and, and super, obviously super into the Yankees. Um, so that is, that is really cool. Uh, you know, hats off to you and you. Baseball Digest for doing that. Yeah, and also we're putting a cover a day. I came up with this idea that, uh, what did I get myself into? That for the last five weeks, I think, we've been posting a cover of the magazine every day on social media. Uh, and and our, uh, our Twitter handle is at Baseball Digest. So every day we come up with, try to put in a relevant cover. Um, I think today... Uh, tomorrow is uh, going to be Willie Mays, his 89th birthday. So um, his first cover was in 1954. So it's fun wow. researching all those things. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is really super cool. Well, Rick, thank you so much. This was amazing. Uh, and, and as I said, we'll definitely schedule a part two because I love it. I love all the stories. Uh, you are a masterful storyteller. Uh, a, 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 just a well of knowledge. And um, it's amazing. Like I, like I said, during this, I love the stories, love the backstories. So I can listen to you talk for days. So we will definitely get that on the books. And right. thanks again. Good luck right, to you in, with Baseball Digest. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Stay safe, Greg. You too. Thanks, Rick. Bye. Bye.